Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. We now have about 60% of the cases are Delta variant. We've had outbreaks in five different summer camps for kids as kids are getting back together. And it spreads into the community. Everyone is eager for a return to life as normal. But as restrictions ease and mandates are lifted, virus variants are of increasing concern. We've started now to see hospitalizations increasing. And mark our words, in just a few weeks, we'll start seeing deaths go up. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. Well, it's exciting. We're recording this podcast on Tuesday, July the 13th, 2021, and it is a momentous day. Indeed. For the first time in 16 months, we are together recording in a studio. I with my guest, Dr. Greg Poland, virologist, (laughs) infectious disease, and vaccine expert. Greg, welcome. Thank you. And probably we should explain, we're both vaccinated. We've been swabbed. We're COVID negative. So we're doing this in a very safe way. That's right. We are following the rules. Tell us what's going on in the world of COVID. It is. You know, here in uh, Rochester on Mayo's campus, things are very well controlled. When we walk out of this room, we're in mass. We've been vaccinated. Very high rates of immunization among our staff. We're keeping our patients safe. So we're able to do this now and be in a small room with a limited number of people. And it's a joy to be together. It is. It has been great. I've been to a couple of meetings now on campus in buildings where we do not perform patient care. That's kind of our rule at Mayo right now, where we've had meetings together. Um, Same thing, distance, but no masks. And it feels really good to see people again. I, I hope that actually says something to the public. Gee, at Mayo Clinic... The doctors are wearing masks and the patients are wearing masks and they're keeping each other safe. We've had no outbreaks attributed to uh, receiving medical care here. And that's a real testament to doing things well. That is great. Yeah. Uh, Greg, tell us what's going on with the Delta variant. We hear so much about that. Well, you know, Helena, this is a, a real concern. Um, we now have about 60% of the cases are Delta variant. You and I spoke just a month, month and a half ago. It was two and a half, then 5%, then 30%. We're now at 60% of cases. So this is the bad actor that we predicted it would be. And we're seeing a rise in cases. Our seven-day average per day is getting up to 19,000 cases a day in the U.S. We were down to 3,000. So we're starting to see, just as we predicted, a surge as people took masks off and as restrictions were lifted before we had achieved high rates of immunization. So, Greg, we have some colleagues in Florida who have shared with me that there are quite a few more hospitalizations now than they had previously. I think Florida is one of those multiple hot states. And I don't know if that is a matter of vaccine lack of vaccinations in that state or what or uh, more people close together what is the reason you're right I I had actually looked up what the hot spots are there Florida Louisiana Arkansas Missouri and Nevada and in fact when you look at that they are accounting for the majority of cases in the U.S. and tend to have the lowest immunization rate so it's no surprise that the two go together I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So some are saying that this really is almost a new pandemic that we're having with the Delta variant. Is that a way to look at it? And if so, what does that mean? Yeah, I, I think that's a way to catch attention. 
it's still the SARS-CoV-2 virus. But just like we have different strains of influenza, we have different strains of SARS-CoV-2. This one is worrisome because the original virus, whatever that infectivity was, the alpha variant or UK variant was about 50% more infectious. The Delta variant is 50% again more infectious. So we're starting to see, we've, we've had outbreaks in five different summer camps for kids as kids are getting back together. And it spreads into the community. We didn't see that with the original virus. So uh, I'm very concerned about school districts that are not going to have masking. I'm very concerned about communities where immunization rates are low. Uh, this is not a new virus. It's a variant, but it is a variant that's much more transmissible that is infecting kids. We've started now to see hospitalizations increasing. And mark our words, in just a few weeks, we'll start seeing deaths go up. Great. I want to go back to something that you said a couple of minutes ago about those hot spots. Yes. And that those were also some of the areas where there were lesser rates of vaccination. Yes. So are people who are vaccinated being asymptomatic carriers of the Delta variant, or is that less common and it's just more common to be spread amongst individuals who are not vaccinated? Yeah, uh, by far, you're exactly right. That, that transmission from one person to another is occurring from somebody who has gotten infected and is not vaccinated. Now, when you ask, is it possible that somebody who got vaccinated could get an asymptomatic inspection, infection and spread it? Yes, teeny little chance uh, uh, if they were elderly, if they were immunocompromised um, or had some other condition where they didn't respond well to the vaccine, that would be possible. But the numbers of those kinds of cases that we're seeing, extremely rare. So you mentioned also a little bit ago about kids going back to school. The CDC has said that vaccinated students should be able to go back maskless, but that kids who have not been vaccinated should likely be wearing masks. Yes. Where are we now with vaccinating uh, children younger than 12 years old? So right now, there is no indication or approval for immunization of children under, the t under 12. Those studies have been done and are ongoing. We expect that those manufacturers will come forward with that data, requesting an emergency use authorization sometime this fall to late fall. So I think we'll start seeing that uh, probably once the school year has already started. So are the vaccine companies moving now to get the full authorization not no longer emergency use. Yes, correct. Uh, that that is in progress. Okay. It's a it, people wonder what's taking so long. Mm -hmm. Well, in many ways, that while frustrating, it's also reassuring. I have been part of this process. FDA will go through by hand every single record in each of those studies that had forty thousand or more participants. They will verify the data. They will redo all the statistical analyses. They will certify the labs that did the testing. And that's just a very laborious job to do. Takes a lot of time. Sounds very laborious. Yeah, and but we'll get there. And I, I'm hoping uh, sometime uh, early this fall. 
we will have uh, a permanent license for these vaccines. And then what about um, seeking authorization for booster shots? I think I saw an article about Pfizer yeah. working that way. So uh, yesterday or the day before, I think it was, Pfizer actually briefed uh, the federal government, the committee responsible for this, on their data in regards to a booster. They're doing what they should do. I know it riles people up, but what they're doing is being prepared. Mm. It doesn't mean there's a recommendation for a booster at this point. It doesn't mean that there'll be a different vaccine, for example, against the Delta variant, but they are being prepared. They are being thoughtful so that if this gets out of control again, and I do think we're gonna see another surge this fall with the relatively low immunization rates we have, they wanna be prepared. You know, you were speaking a couple of minutes ago about how the FDA will go through the information uh, about the testing and those right. who've been vaccinated to, uh, under all the studies to right. see what kind of complications there have been, et cetera, right. um, side effects, et cetera. I had read an article about vaccines being associated potentially, I think it was the J&J &J vaccine, perhaps with Guillain-Barre syndrome. Yes. Uh, Tell us what in the world is Guillain-Barre syndrome and is that a concern? Yeah, uh, Helena, you're, you're absolutely right. I believe that information was released last night. Uh, there have been about 100 known cases of Guillain-Barre mm. in about 12 and a half million people who have received uh, the J&J &J vaccine. So that's a rate of about one per 125,000. That's about or maybe slightly higher than the background rate that okay. we see. We even see Guillain-Barre in association with COVID infection. So it's one of those things that, you know, that headline is going to frighten people. We don't know if it's associated yet because that rate is so low. So more studies will be done and they'll, they'll follow that. You asked about what Guillain-Barre is. It's an ascending paralysis. So people might notice weakness or unusual sensations in their arms or legs. In worst cases, uh, maybe loss of bowel and bladder control. In the very worst cases, the inability to breathe. That's very unusual. And for the most part, people recover completely from that. So it's one of those things where you're looking at a risk of Guillain-Barre from infection with COVID that's higher than the risk of Guillain-Barre oh. associated mm -hmm. with the vaccine. Now, is it typically associated with viral infections? It is. is uh, that how for example, thinking? and famously so, influenza. That's the primary one. But there are other parasitic diseases, too, that lead to Guillain-Barre. Greg, we're now going to move on to a few listener questions oh, that we've collected. These. We have collected quite a long list of them, <laughs> and we we're not going to get to them all today. I will just warn you that we'll save we, some we up for next time. We have great listeners, sharp listeners, We do, listeners very too. sharp. They ask us very good questions. Yeah. Our first listener is a, a retired nurse who is now helping to give COVID vaccinations. Great. And she has had many questions from adults who have been concerned about receiving the COVID vaccine out of fear that there are adverse events that perhaps are not being reported or that are being erroneously reported. So in other words, uh, concern that as we move to vaccinating the younger children, such as the two to 11 year old mm -hmm. age range, do we really know that this vaccine is safe 
um, yeah. and that we're getting accurate reports when people talk about the adverse events? You know, those are very fair questions and they demand fair and honest answers. So I, I appreciate the question. It's interesting that thus far, where we have seen side effects, they've been in people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. They haven't been in the people 18 down to age 12. So we don't expect any increased risk of side effects in the pediatric population. Is that because we haven't vaccinated enough of them yet? Well, and that's a potential, um, so a good critical observation. Uh, You know, we're talking about uh, a few thousand, not hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. yet. Um, So that's, that's one issue. The second issue is, particularly when we're facing a virus like the Delta variant, where we are seeing kids get infected, we are seeing kids get uh, hospitalized and have complications. We're either going to make them immune by infection or immunity due to vaccine, and we'd much rather do it by vaccine. I know people are confused about that. They think about the relative lack of any significant effect of COVID on kids a year ago with the original virus. That is not true to the same extent with these variants. So uh, those studies are being done. Um, It will be, I'm sure, recommended uh, for children. And then we watch and accumulate more and more data. When you think about it, there's no way to know the answer about safety without using it. And so what they do, and appropriately so, is they start with adults and they work their way down. So well over 300 million doses of COVID vaccines have been given in the U.S. We have a very good sense of the safety. So as you move down to children, it's easier and easier to spot, are those same side effects occurring? Are they more common or less common? I expect they're going to be less common, much less common. Greg, how does the adverse event reporting system work? We're talking about immunizing millions yes. of people. So how do how do people how do the adverse events get reported back to say the FDA? Really good question and we are fortunate in the US. I think every country in the world would say we have the most robust vaccine safety network. And it has multiple overlapping, different safety aspects to it. You mentioned VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Anybody can go online, V-A-E-R-S, and report any side effect in anybody for any reason. So that's what's called a passive. So for example, Helena, if you told me I got a vaccine and I had this side effect, you could report it, I could report it, and the people sitting in the studio could report it. What stops people from reporting inaccurately? And they do. They often do. So when you hear about you know 30,000 VAERS reports, the reason this takes time, each of those are gone through. They go to the medical records. And I'll give you an example. There are people who reported side effects to the vaccine that occurred before they got the vaccine, when they actually go into the medical record and all kinds of permutations of that. So that's a passive one. It's 
a not a very um, specific, but it's highly sensitive. So how do you nail it down even further? Well, uh, they do what's called a rapid cycle analysis. So every week, the Medicare database, so everybody age 65 and older in the US, they go and they look for any signal of any medical problem that's occurring in people that are vaccinated that would be above what we saw, say, two years ago. And then there are additional ways that they study this. Some of the very large health systems like Kaiser Permanente, for example, that has enrolled tens of millions of people. They go through every week electronically looking for any uptick in any kind of uh, medical issue. This is how 100 cases out of 12 and a half million doses gets detected. You know, again, I know it's like a needle in a haystack. It is. You're exactly right. It's a needle in the haystack. It scares people, but it tells you this is this is how good our safety surveillance system is. Talk about time consuming. (laughs) Sounds very time consuming. That's why it takes so long to get these approved. Greg, our next listener wants to know if the COVID vaccine can present prevent long haulers. Yeah, this is an interesting question because we certainly see in unvaccinated people who develop asymptomatic, even mild disease, that they can develop symptoms. In fact, interesting statistic in a paper that came out, two thirds of the people that got COVID but were not sick enough to go to the doctor within three months reported new symptoms that they had not had before. So this is a real phenomenon. We are aware of a few, and it's very rare, of people who have gotten fully vaccinated, who were healthy, got asymptomatic infection, and had persistent, at least so far, persistent, mild, and in one case I know of, more severe symptoms but you're talking about one out of hundreds of millions. So it's extremely rare, but not impossible. Okay. So our next question is about the Delta variant again. Mm. This person astutely points out that um, many healthcare institutions are not testing for variants necessarily when you're diagnosed with COVID. I don't think at Mayo that we necessarily routinely test everyone for the variant that they're suffering from. So how do you know then that Delta is the primary variant and that there aren't other variants out there that are um, This is more what prevalent. I mean by very sharp listeners that we have. I told you, I, you'd be challenged today. Yes. So what happens is you're right. At medical centers, what they're doing is screening for any SARS-CoV-2 virus. And the assays we use pick up all those different variants. What happens is that various institutions and the CDC screen a selected sample of those in order to get a sense of the changing epidemiology. So a year ago, zero Delta variants. Six, eight weeks ago, about two and a half percent of the ones that they tested were Delta. Then it became five, then 10, then 30, today 60%. And uh, that correlates, too, with what we're seeing in uh, hospitals. 99.2% of the people dying of COVID in the U.S. are unvaccinated people. Hmm. 
Wow, that is sobering. And really. uh, I have had the experience, and I imagine many clinicians have, of people who were just misinformed about COVID and end up in the hospital, end up very ill, or in a few cases that have died. And they'll often say to their surviving spouse, tell people we were wrong. Tell mm. people this is real. Mm. And it's just tragic that that has to happen one after another. So keep getting vaccinated. Yes, get vaccinated. Greg, our next question is about mRNA vaccines. Now, mm. we've talk, talked about this in the past, but it's been quite a while, so it might be worth touching on again. This individual is curious about the fact that this is the first mRNA vaccine that's really been in widespread yes. use and wonders, will this be a vector um, for future vaccines, a mode of delivery for future vaccines? Do you expect to see more and more of it or is there something unique about this no, virus? No, uh, quite the contrary and you're right. Uh, in fact, the first mRNA influenza vaccine trial is taking place already. How interesting. So I expect that we'll see this technology diffuse widely into routine vaccines. It's very efficient and it's, uh, hmm. it, it, look at the kind of immunity that we're developing against the virus uh, in the case of COVID. Now, the one thing that they are working on as they do with every new vaccine is how do we achieve the same benefit but lower the reactogenicity, the side effect profile? Sure. Ideally, you don't want people to have a low-grade fever or a headache or feel stay home tired work. for a few hours to a <laughs> yep. day. So uh, they're working on that mm -hmm. part, and that's probably a function of the lipid nanoparticle that coats the mRNA. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, that is really interesting. So this listener question comes from our online patient community, Mayo Clinic Connect. Ah. If someone received the first vaccine two months ago, but they never went and got their uh, second vaccine, mm. or even more than two months ago, should they still go get their second vaccine? Or are they, is there a point where you're starting over? No, and getting your not. vaccines? And this is, this is helpful. I'm glad you asked this question because it's going to be pertinent to a fair number of people who got the first dose get scared reading the headlines or talking to other people about the second dose. You do not have to start over. Now, until you get that second dose, you're susceptible, even more so against the Delta variant. If you only got one oh, dose of an mRNA vaccine, you're only about 20, 30% protected against Delta. If you get two doses, we're up in the high 80s and 90s in terms of protection. And is that different than the original yes, COVID it because is. of how transmissible the Delta exactly variant is? Exactly right, exactly okay. right. Okay. Greg, our next question is from an individual who leads religious services in their retirement community, and they're talking about how to restart their programming, uh, especially gatherings where they wouldn't have masks on and are singing. Hmm. So what are the risks for gatherings with older folks who have been, um, who have been vaccinated in terms of breakthrough infections and as fully vaccinated individuals, is there a worry about asymptomatic transmission to unvaccinated staff and surrounding community if yeah. they gather without masks? There's a lot of questions buried there in are. there. And it's and you know, it's not really possible to give a well, it's a one in one thousand risk. It's not really possible. What we can say is that when you are in a room 
with other fully vaccinated people, you don't need a mask. Now, what if you're somebody who's fully vaccinated, but immunocompromised? For example, and, and the best example would be somebody who's had a solid organ transplant. I would wear that for that patient. I would wear a mask in that case because you don't want to take even that minute chance. What about the situation where you have a mixed group, people who are vaccinated and people who aren't vaccinated indoors where you're singing in a confined area? I personally would wear a mask. Even, I mean, I know what my antibody level is. I am uh, almost assuredly protected. I've had two doses. I would wear a mask in there, in part so that I don't have any chance of spreading something to them, in part to be a role model, and in part to prevent the really minute risk that I could get infected. I remember some um, news articles, actually, some uh, where there were some choirs who had had difficulty at the beginning yes. of COVID because there were studies afterwards showing that droplets are really yes. um, propagated, apparently, with singing. Yes. And um, so I think in this situation, what you're saying is that these people wouldn't know if the staff there was vaccinated or not, or if everyone in their group is vaccinated. Yeah. So if they, if they don't know, I mean, I'm kind of a belt and suspenders type person when it comes to people's health. I wear a mask. Mm -hmm. The cost and the inconvenience of a mask is nothing. You and I all day long are in a mask. I don't even notice it. Um, I know some people do, but I personally would wear a mask. Does that differ if the meeting is outside? Yes, it would. Um, however, uh, uh, again, if it's, um, if it's a very large group like a, a rally or something, mm -hmm. I'd probably wear one. But for what you're talking about outside, I, I have much less concern. All right. Well, thank goodness for summer. Yeah. Maybe some outdoor gatherings then. That's I, I want to go back just to say one other thing about the Johnson & Johnson mm -hmm. and the Guillain-Barre, which maybe will be reassuring at least to some people. Those 100 cases have been seen primarily in men and primarily in men age 50 and older. So it is not being seen in younger people. And I, I remember to say that because we're making such a push to get younger people mm -hmm. vaccinated. Uh, that risk, if it's present, is no greater than the background risk from other respiratory viruses. Oh, that's a great point yeah. to make because there's been so much talk recently yes. about the risk for younger people right. and adverse events. That's good. What else have you got to share with us today, Greg? Oh, let's see here. Uh, I, I mentioned that there have been summer camp outbreaks. So yes. we have seen these in Texas, Illinois, Florida, Missouri, Kansas. Now, this is an interesting situation. These are people both vaccinated and unvaccinated uh, in dormitory-like settings, in dining halls, and we're seeing outbreaks with this Delta variant. Hmm. And they go home and they spread it to their families and then to the community. So in these communities that are unvaccinated, this is where we're gonna see surges. And for the unvaccinated people, they really are, to coin a term, variant factories. Every time somebody in a community gets infected, 
that virus has the opportunity to mutate. And is it conceivable that this virus will continue to get more transmissible and cause more severe disease and evade the immunity we have from vaccines such that we start all over again? Yes, hmm. that's conceivable. So it really is, and, and I, I, I hope people will adopt a viewpoint not just about their own well-being, but the well-being of others. We're in this together. And until we get really high rates of immunization, we will all at various levels be at risk. Your points about summer camp are well taken yeah. and gave me flashbacks to when my kids came home with head lice one oh, year from summer camp. I and know. oh, I just thought that was about the worst that could happen, but they did not come home with the Delta variant. No, so I can be grateful for that. Thankfully. Oh, All right. Well, it's so wonderful to get together in person, it Greg. It is, Alina. A delight to be with you. Wonderful. And uh, any last words for our listeners today of you know encouragement? What, what, I, what I try to say every time, if you are not vaccinated, please reconsider. I know that people are hesitant. I know that people are fearful over some of the headlines they see. But talk to somebody knowledgeable and expert in this, somebody credible. Um, I have had many letters, Helena, from our listeners who were hesitant and said mm -hmm. after listening to us, they went ahead and got their vaccines. And they're wonderful letters. We've shared a yes. few of them of how thankful they are that they did it. They had no side effects, none of the things that have been hyped up or people are scared about. And they can go back to a normal, at least more normal way of living, much like you and I are right here. So just a real encouragement. Uh, let's be done with this. We can conquer this if we all put our arms up and uh, put our arms into this. Keep taking care of each other. Yes, yes. All right. Thank you so much, Greg, Pleasure. for being here. It's wonderful to be in person again. Yes. And thanks to each of you, too, for being with us today. Uh, our thanks to Greg Poland, a virologist, infectious disease, and vaccine expert from Mayo Clinic, of course, for being here again today. I hope that you learned something. I know that I did. We wish each of you a very wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.